Today, we're returning back to Genesis. We're going to be looking at chapter 45 to set the stage on where we left off last week. The brothers had been to Joseph's house. They ate a meal. They were preparing to return to their father in Canaan. <clears throat> Joseph had his steward as they're packing up in the evening after the meal to put all their money back in the mouths of their bags and to put the silver cup from his own use into Benjamin's sack. So at daybreak, as soon as the sun's up, they're off headed back to Canaan. And soon after, Joseph sent his servant, his chief servant, out to overtake them and tell them to accuse them of taking the cup. And so the brothers responded rather defensively that uh, we didn't take your cup. Why would we do that? We were there and brought back the money that you, we might have been accused of stealing before. We've shown ourselves to be honest and uh, not thieving. <clears throat> and so let the one who has this cup, if it be found on them, let him die. And if it's one of us, then we will, the rest of us will serve you as slaves. Well, the steward alters that deal. He says no. He doesn't say no, but he says this is how it's going to work. The one with the cup will become my slave. The rest will be seen as innocent. And, of course, he already knew what he was going to find because he, he was, at Joseph's direction, the one that set this whole thing up. And the cup is found in Benjamin's bag. And the brothers tore their clothes they packed back up, and now they went back to Joseph. And Joseph declares, the one with the cup will be my slave. The rest of you go back to your father. Well, Judah then approaches Joseph, and he both steps up to take leadership and to offer himself as the one to stay instead of Benjamin. But he tells them the whole situation about the anguish of losing one brother and Benjamin's the only one left born to that mother and so Jacob has a special place for him in his heart he says it's going to grieve our father to death because of him being the only remaining son of Rachel and Judah asked to be kept as a slave in place of Benjamin in a substitutionary way and so there are some modeling going on there, some typing going on as we see that he wants to stay in place of Benjamin as a substitution. And that takes us to where we're going to pick it up today. So to begin with, let's read Genesis 45, 1 through 15. Who will read that for us? And Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But the brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. 
God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all the splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. All right. So, in verse 1, they're still all together after having coming back and been accused and G Joseph says Benjamin's going to be my slave and Judah offers up himself as a substitutionary uh, slave in place of Benjamin at this point Joseph loses self-control he cannot control himself before all those people who were with him and he cried have everyone go out from me now you can imagine this in your mind's eye of this ruler type person crying out an order i'm sure this was had emotion behind it and i'm sure the people did not hesitate to respond and it says there was no man with him when joseph made himself known to his brothers obviously his own family was still there because the brothers are still there but all the egyptians have scattered and in this time his emotions are pouring out and I think we ought to realize how strong those emotions would be I mean Joseph was he wasn't just sold into slavery by some people Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers you know there's a there's something about that that would go far beyond just unfairness this is family. This is your brothers turning you aside. They're betraying you. They're, they're, they're getting rid of you. And he probably had some inkling that this was their nicer choice because their thoughts prior to that were what? Murderous. And so here he is, in his mind, certainly unfairly, and I think in the minds of anybody that would read this account very unfairly, uh, shuffled off and eliminated from the family. <laughs> and, you know, we might empathize a little bit with the brothers having to listen to Joseph about his dreams and his, they would say, delusions of grandeur. They weren't delusions but that's how they would have seen it they were not real happy with him he was a tough brother to have in certain ways he had 
come back at one point and given a bad report on them to their dad, to their father Jacob, about their shepherding experiences. And so all of that was helping them see that this was a solution to a problem. But from Joseph's perspective, and from anybody with decent morals perspective, that was no solution. But anyway, there's where, there's where he is. And he's sold to Ishmaelites. They take him to Egypt. And we know all he's been through. The problem with Potiphar's wife being in, 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 slay, in, the, in the prison. And eventually, almost at the last moment for both himself and Egypt, he is taken out to give a, an interpretation of a dream for Pharaoh because of his previous interpretive skills. And so he spent a lot of years, we'll talk about that a little bit more, in a very, very difficult situation, unfair, unjust, for most of us um, and the culture we've grown up in, we'd be wanting to explode all the time, wouldn't we? Uh, we would be one of those people that you see on TV going, I shouldn't be here in prison. I didn't do it. And every once in a while we find out somebody can show that they're the wrong person in prison and get themselves out. Well, here is Joseph going through all this, but there's one big, huge exception to Joseph's experience compared to most, and that was everywhere he went, he prospered in his setting, and he created prosperity for the people that he was enslaved to. And why was it that he had that kind of success? God was with him. So Joseph didn't live through this alone. And when he had the opportunities to tell folks, no, the reason we're prospering here, the reason I can interpret your dream is not because of something in me. This is what God is revealing to me. And so he was making it clear, this is, this is Yahweh that is speaking to you in your dreams. And I'm just telling you what Yahweh has to say. I'm not the special person here. Yahweh is. And so here's Joseph with all these years of betrayal, being mistreated, serving God, being, having God with him, and all of the emotions are, are pouring forth. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And so the people around him are hearing his weeping and it apparently very quickly becomes known even in Pharaoh's household that Joseph is emotionally unloading himself. He's weeping and, and he's anguishing. And so uh, Joseph has made this emotional scene out of his weeping. And then we get to verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And he asked him a question, is my father still alive? How did his brothers respond? Well, they were dismayed and and they could not answer him. Now why couldn't they answer him? Didn't they not know whether Jacob was alive or not? Well, they knew. Yeah, they saw a ghost. Yeah, it's like, ah, where do I hide? You know, that, that, that saying, you know, I, I, I just want to crawl under a rock. They were looking for 11 rocks real quick. And, but, 
they were they they didn't know what to do they didn't know what to say and we're going to explore that just a little bit more but why you know th this is a one another one of those things i read in genesis that i go god tell me what was causing their dismay i can think of a few things but which one or which of the all of them is it why might they have been dismayed fear, fear. why fear yeah uh, how, how powerful is joseph very, yeah, I mean, if he wants them to die, what's going to happen? They're going to die. If he wants to throw them in prison, which, by the way, sounds kind of fair, doesn't it? Could he throw them in prison? Absolutely. There's one way. Now, they don't know it yet, and maybe they never know. We don't really hear in, in Genesis how much of this comes out. But um, he's already shown a lot of power over them, hasn't he? How has he shown power over them? Well, they do bow down to him, absolutely. He keeps putting the money. He's the one behind the money showing up in their bags. So he is able to set up the circumstances he wants to put them in bad light. What, how did he treat them on their first uh, arrival in, in Egypt? You're spies. And they're like, ooh, we, you know, we've got to convince this guy we're not spies. And he set something up. I'll keep Simeon, and, uh, and I'm going to keep him. And if you're telling me the truth, you're going to bring your brother Benjamin back. And so they get ready to come back. They believe that. I mean, they weren't going back without Benjamin. Um, why else might they be dismayed? I mean, Joseph could have caused them harm. He could have got even with them. Why else? I mean, the whole thing is out there for them to reckon with now. What, am, what, what are they going to say? And they, they have been telling lies upon lies. Upon, I mean, they even lied to Joseph about his own death. Now, they couldn't have, they obviously didn't know it at the time because Joseph was staying in character and they didn't realize it was Joseph. But um, th they've been telling everybody that, oh, we found his coat and didn't find him and he must have been dead. So now they've got everything all at once out in the open. What are we going to do about it? And so they've got to think about, well, you know, if I will I ever get to see my father again, if I do, what am I going to tell him? I mean, th this is this is the biggest understatement in the world to say an awkward moment. It was so awkward, and they felt so awkward they were speechless, and so they were not happy to see him. If things had happened like they said you know we were out wandering around we found this coat it looks like joseph's coats all covered with blood if that had been the truth and now they were there to found, saw joseph what kind of reaction would you expect hey our long lost brother we thought you were dead i mean there would have been great joy god preserved you or however they would have looked at the events that came came out of that but they knew better there is no lie they can tell Joseph right now to try to ease their discomfort. 
and they have been relying on telling either less than the truth or flat out lies all the way through. And so they were dismayed, they were speechless, and then Joseph in verse 4 says to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. They really don't have a choice. Joseph's the powerful man in the room. But this is what he says that's recorded. He may have said other things but in addition. But he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And then he gives them a direction. Do, now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And that's quite a statement on Joseph's part. Even in the truth of that statement, um, Joseph could have preserved everybody in the family except the ten brothers. I'm sure he would have preserved Benjamin, and I'm sure he would have preserved his father, but you've got all the children that he hasn't met yet and all this. He, he could have, in some senses, still taken care of a couple of the brothers and Jacob. He could have done a lot of different things, but it's obvious that in his heart, he is looking at this very differently. How could Joseph have known God was involved in this? What's Joseph's source of information here? Remember the dreams he had when he was young? The dreams he had when he was younger? What else? Well, the dreams of Pharaoh and uh, the cupbearer and baker. And yeah, he was interpreting dreams, and I'll come back to, the, to one of those in a minute with a little bit more. Um, what else did he have? Yeah, the, the covenant promise is still out there, and I don't know how much he thought about that, but it's it's certainly there. What else? When you look back over your life in the past, you can see God works. It's like, oh, this is like, I mean, things just kind of line up. Yeah, and, and um, I, I think we ought to look at all of those things, and, and not, not in detail right now, but I mean, we ought to realize he's got this whole perspective that's come together. I mean, in whatever he's done, he's prospered. And and you can see, maybe not in the moment that he was thrown in prison because of the issue with Potiphar's wife, but certainly as he's interpreting these dreams, I mean, he can start piecing things together that God, eventually it turns out that God gave a dream to Pharaoh. And what's the path of Joseph's being called out to interpret that dream to set all this up? Well, you have to go back to the dreams of the two servants of Pharaoh. You have to go to the fact they were all in prison together. I mean, if you keep walking backwards, uh, it wouldn't take a lot of intuition to figure out God's been moving in a direction here. And the other thing that you see in the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream is Joseph not only interprets the dream, but he instantly goes into the solution. And... 
it makes me wonder, and I certainly would not hold this up as I know this happened, but uh, makes me wonder how much God had really may have revealed in addition, because he didn't hesitate. He went right into the solution that I that clearly was God at work in him, whether it was through dream, whether he thought it through, whether it was, however he came to that solution, I mean, he laid it out. And Pharaoh said, yeah, you're right. That's the right solution, and you're the right man. And all of these things came together. And Joseph has to see all of those things coming together, and even the way he named his sons. One about forgetfulness, and the other one about prosperity and what's happening. You know, it's, it's clear that things are happening in Joseph's life where he can see God's hand at work in all that's happening. Certainly, yeah. I mean, the events proved the interpretation was correct. I did put the right man there. And the solution was correct. Now, what did Joseph mean that God sent me here, not you? I mean, isn't that how he said it? Um, he said, uh, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be grieved, in verse 5, nor angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you, I guess not you isn't in there. God sent me before you to preserve life. So what does he mean by that? You really didn't do it? God's in control. You, you were working out God's plan. And does that mean these guys are off the hook? It means Joseph's going to say, I consider you off the hook so to speak. I mean, in as much as it's up to Joseph, he's saying, this is, what's more important here is God at work. And God had a plan, and the God is putting the plan into place. And I'm going to be a little careful how far I go here, not because of being uncertain about what's to be said, but we've got a... When we get over to chapter 50, I think it is, might be... I think it's 50. We've got that famous line, I don't want to steal all of its thunder right now, that says, God meant it for good, even though you meant it for, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we're going to address that in a lot more detail. But we, we, we can clearly see right now that Joseph is more concerned about what God is putting together for his plan and what, he's, is, what his intentions are versus what their intentions were. Did, were their intentions when they sold Joseph into slavery met? Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, up until this moment, they were met. We've had it with a brother. He's got to go and go. He did. Now, it's kind of reversed just a bit. <laughs> now, now that brother we wanted to get rid of is not only back, but... He's back as the most powerful man probably on the face of the earth at that moment from a human perspective. And, oh my goodness. And he knows what we did, and all those things are there. 
Um, and, and as we look at this, I've got another question for you. Um, as God was using these series of events, and, and using might not even be the right word, but we'll, we'll, we'll probably talk about that in a little bit. How many people, how many people were responding to God's call on their heart to live righteously? What I'm trying to say is, how many people, how many of these people that were involved in this had any concern for what God wanted? One? And you name, who's the one? Joseph. Outside of Joseph, anybody care what God had in mind? Well, ultimately, Pharaoh came to care a little bit because God revealed the calamity that was going to come upon them with regard to the famine. But that pretty much was the end of what we know about Pharaoh anyway, his concerns about Yahweh. We don't have a group of people out here striving to accomplish the purposes of God. And yet God's purposes are absolutely done, aren't they? Along the way, we see all of this evil and evil intent. And, you know, you would think Pharaoh would have had, not Pharaoh, Potiphar would have had enough sense to look into that situation more. But he didn't. I mean, just one unfairness after another. The cupbearer, don't forget me when you get out of prison. It's the first thing the cupbearer apparently did, forgot Joseph. He didn't come up until we have Pharaoh uh, beside himself with a dream he can't interpret, get interpreted. Then he goes, oh, you know what? Might have an answer for you. And so God's purposes, God's sovereignty is clearly shown here. And we could stop and make a long list of times when evil was done and God used that evil to fulfill his purposes. As a matter of fact, if we kept studying about what happens to the Jews, the descendants of Abraham in Egypt, in about 400 years we're going to find them to be enslaved, feared, orders of Pharaoh, when, you, when the uh, birthing helper is there and they seize the son is born there to kill it. Well, that didn't work so good. The, the people who were helping with the birthing said they came up with a untruth. Oh, these, these women in, from uh, Abraham, the, the Jews, when they get birth, they do it so fast we can't get there in time. So we don't know what's happening. And so the next step is Pharaoh says, hey, when you come across a Hebrew baby boy, throw him in the Nile. And you know the story. We get to Moses and everything that happens. And God is ordering all of these things. And yet, there aren't very many people involved. There are some, when we get to the time of Moses, that appear to be God-fearing. But... For the most part, it's people just trying to survive day by day, and a lot of evil is being done, and God's purposes are still being fulfilled. So that's the way that things are going. Turn over to Psalm 105. 
the Jews, the, the book of Psalms is certainly inspired. It's certainly the truth. It's certainly we can learn a lot from it. It teaches us a lot. It's also a book that contains many celebratory songs that most of this was music. I say most, I believe it all was intended to be sung as words to music. And in Psalm 105, we're not going to read it all because we got more to come, but when we see Psalm 105, it's the story of how they were blessed through Joseph. Let's read verses 16 through 22. Psalm 105, 16 through 22. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke off supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Now that's it's interesting. It expands Joseph's role in Pharaoh's household just a little bit or provides some clarity to it that he, he had the he had the authority to imprison his princes at will. I mean, it said so in Genesis, but it expands it in terms of a detail here. I mean he, he could put anybody in prison he wanted to but he was also there to teach his elders wisdom. Pharaoh wanted his elders, God maybe wanted, I don't know who to say was the driver behind this, but to teach the elders and leaders wisdom. And so here is Joseph. He's there. He's in this role. Let's continue. There in verse 5, Joseph, as he's told them, don't be grieved yourselves. God sent me before you to preserve life. Maybe we should ask Whose life are we preserving? Yeah, it, it's, it's the family of the promise. Their descendants are supposed to be greater than the sands of the sea. And so he's there to preserve life, to arrange for them to have, continue in life and have it abundantly. Um, and so much the same as Christ spiritually for us preserves our life. He's there physically preserving their life and keeping the promise so it can live. And then he explains it, verse 6, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. We don't know how much the news of Pharaoh's dream was spread abroad, but we don't know if the family was aware of this, lim of this seven year famine, that there's still five to go. But in verse seven, he says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And so Joseph clearly is here in the role of deliverer just as Christ is in the role of deliverer for us. They are saved, delivered, just as we are saved and delivered spiritually. As we look at this, I want to back up and look at these words with a little bit of, of detail. Um, 
Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. What is he talking about here? When you look at those words, what does it mean to save for you a remnant? Well, maybe a good question is, what is a remnant? Would this go to what Russell mentioned about a covenant to continue it? It, it gets there. Let's start here. A remnant is a remainder. Sometimes it could be uh, translated descendants or what is left. And that's really what a remnant is. This would be a very different connotation, context, and so on. But if you just need a little patch of uh, some rolled flooring, what do you go to the store to buy? A remnant. It's what was left over. It's what still exists after a job was done. Now, that really doesn't fit very well. That's got some negative connotations. And that's not what we mean here. We could say this, and not be far off at least, to preserve for you some descendants. And that really should have been pretty important to them. They really should have been expecting or believing that God was going to do that anyway. I mean, the famine got so severe, they had nothing to eat. Part of the argument for going back to Egypt is, we're all going to die anyway. And what's the promise? That just seems to not get mentioned here it seems it mentioned in the whole story of Joseph. I mean, you could even back up and say, where does Joseph fit in the promise when the brothers were getting ready to sell him into slavery or to kill him? Were they thinking about, oh, we're descendants of the promise? Did they ask themselves, well, how does Joseph fit into God's promises to our ancestor Abraham? No, they're just thinking about what they want for their own uh, situation when they were confronted with Joseph. But here, sent to preserve for you a remnant. Apart from the work of Joseph, what would be the likely outcome of this famine? Now, I, I said that in human terms. In, in, in the, a better context, apart from the work God is doing here, if you just looked at it from a physical standpoint, what could you have expected as a result for this famine for Jacob and his family? Starvation. But that's not the promise. And Joseph doesn't specifically bring up the promise, but I'm here so that you can even have descendants so that the descendant that you already have may survive this. He could be saying, intending to infer clearly so that our family, the family of promise, that eventually will not only be numerous as the sand on the shore, on the beach, if you will, but will also bless all nations will continue and that's what God is doing he's preserving his promise it flows out of the promise to Abraham and 
of course, we can see how he's doing that. But I don't want to just talk about remnant in this context alone. When you look at the scriptures, this word remnant comes up over and over and over again. And so I've got some verses that I want to look at. We may not even get through with this first section here today. Um, Go over to 2 Kings 19, 30 through 32. 2 Kings 19, 30 through 32. I've got more here than I'm than we'll choose to read today, but uh, we'll look at some of these. Because honestly, if you go do a search for remnant, you're going to get a lot of hits. I selected seven or eight out of, I'm guessing, forty or so. Second Kings nineteen thirty through thirty two. Somebody read that for us. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. So what we're in, we're in a period where Hezekiah has prayed a prayer. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer because they have been overrun by the Assyrians. And Sennacherib is the king of the Assyrians. And this is um, a part of uh, what the response was through the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah. And so as a result of his prayer at a time when Israel has been taken captive, God communicates to the one who prayed, the king Hezekiah of, of, of Israel, Judah, to be more accurate because we're in the period of two kingdoms, that the remnant um, will return and take root downward and bear fruit upward. What is he telling Hezekiah here? Not, not only not totally destroy, but going to make the remnant flourish. God is going to preserve children of the promise to go back to Judah and put roots downward. What do you think he's talking about there? What do you think is the, what he's clearly communicating through this analogy? A trajectory from the past toward the future where Christ Yep, we're coming to a Christian, to the remnant that Christ takes and the Jews in that. But this putting roots downward is putting roots back into the truth. And so they're going to be firmly planted again in Judah. And not only are they going to have firm roots, are they going to draw sustenance from that? Are they going to go back to the truths of God? But out of that, they will bear fruit upward. I don't just think that means that corn grows above the ground. They're going to bear fruit that is fruit toward God. 
right now we're seeing one of the many examples in the Old Testament of God talking about a remnant. There's always a remnant that he preserves that become the children that are living out the promise. Doesn't preserve the whole nation. Why was Judah overrun by the Assyrians? They were sinful. They rejected God. They turned from God. God said, okay. I told you what I'd do. Watch. And they are overrun by the Assyrians. Sennacherib was terrible. And I don't have in my head all the things he did, but he was terrible. And God, it looked like, was wiping out the Israelites through this, at least the ones in the kingdom of Judah. But no, God said, no, no, there's a remnant. Going to bring them back. You'll see that happen. Um, Let's go down the timeline a little bit. For the next one, let's go over to 2 Chronicles 34, 8 through 10. 2 Chronicles 34, 8 through 10. And if somebody would read that for us. By the way, this is after Sennacherib. This is what actually happens, or, or a piece of it anyway. Second Chronicles 34, 8 through 10. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Seraphim, the son of Asla, and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Johaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hil Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought to into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh, and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord, and the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. Who gave the money so they could do the work? The remnant. So here is the remnant functioning to get the temple rebuilt. And so God is working through this remnant. We're going to have a little fun again with this passage when we get into 49 and we start talking about the tribes and where they all wound up. Because it's, it's, it's a little bit interesting right here that, this, that Judah, we're mentioning the Levites as well as the sons of Joseph here as the tribes. But... So here is God working with the remnant. I want to keep this going. Uh, look at Isaiah 10, um, 20 and 20 through 22. Isaiah 10, 20 through 22. I want to make sure we get this remnant. Isaiah 10, 20 through 22. I want to make sure we get this concept of remnant this place of the remnant in God's 
economy out on the table. Who would read Isaiah 10, 20 through 22 for us? Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For thou, your people, for though your people... O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. Here we see the remnant again. This is Isaiah's prophecy about the remnant's return. But it's interesting that it's the remnant of Jacob to the mighty hand of God. Your people might be like the sand of the sea, but... Only a remnant will return. Meaning it's only a small group or a lesser group that will come back. And they will turn their attention toward God. They will be God worshipers and God servers. Even though they're coming out of a people who were rebellious and had turned away from God. And God's going to preserve that for them, for himself, a remnant. Um... I'm going to skip a couple others here. I'll tell you that one comes from Jeremiah. Well, no, we can't skip that one. Jeremiah 23, verses 2 through 4. Jeremiah 23, verses 2 through 4. Oops, turned too many pages. Jeremiah 23, 2 through 4. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them, driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who, are, who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So here we have God, through Jeremiah, prophesying that talking first, accusing the ones that should have been shepherding his people, that you didn't shepherd them, you scattered them abroad. You didn't see to their spiritual nourishment. You were a part of their rebellion. And you didn't attend them, but I'm going to attend to you. You're going to get what you have coming. For your evil deeds, declares the Lord in verse 2. I myself, though, God says, will gather. I get my eyes just skipped a line. Will gather my flock. Nope. I myself will gather the remnant, what's left of my flock. And out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. And so there's a lot of prophecy right here. 
gathering back his flock to their home place. That has been fulfilled a couple of times over the years. One is, is when the captive nations return back to Israel, a remnant comes back. I think it's also fair to say in the 1940s when we saw the flood of Jews go back to Israel is another fulfillment of that prophecy. But he also says, I will raise up shepherds over them. They will tend to them. They will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. And this I acting, when God says, I will act, I will gather them, I will raise up the shepherds, uh, many look to this as a messianic prophecy that this really won't truly happen until Jesus as Messiah is tending over the remnant of Israel. Questions, comments? Don't want to keep you from making your comments here. Um, where I really want to go, and before we run out of time, I just got to skip over here. Go to Romans 9. Romans 9, 22 through 29. Now this is a passage that would fit well if we wanted to spend some time talking about Joseph and God doing what he was going to do and his will being done and uh, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man for his own sin. Uh, we just don't, aren't going to take the time for it here. We're going to get a chance to do that later on in another lesson. But Romans 9, 22 through 29, let's read this. Who's got, who can read it for us? What of God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they are with there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Did you say 27 or 28? Uh, I said 29. 29, okay. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel has, be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Yes. And when we look at this passage, this is very rich and full. I'm going to struggle to get it all in, and I've got one more we ought to do. But he's going back, Paul is right here, to the same passage in Isaiah we just read about preserving a remnant. And he says, God willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known. Think about that for a minute. God's power is revealed in his wrath endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory even us 
whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he goes back to um, a passage in Hosea, which is like the passage, probably a quote by Hosea of Isaiah. And he talks about, I'm going to call people that were not my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved, and it shall be in this place where it's said to them, you're not my people, there they shall be called the sons of God. Who is Paul talking about through these prophecies right here? Who are the people called not my people, but will be my people? Gentiles. And then Isaiah, this is the Isaiah passage, sorry, I had it backwards. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of sons be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Who just got included in the remnant in this teaching by Paul? The Gentiles. If you're a believer, you're part of the remnant. You're part of the lesser group that God is preserving for salvation, to glorify Him through His mercy. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And as Isaiah foretold, unless he had preserved a remnant, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. When's the last time you met a Sodomite or a person from Gomorrah? I can't say Gomorrahite or whatever that's supposed to be. When have you met one? Did any escape? Well, we can say Lot did, but Lot was really part of the remnant and God took him out before that occurred so that remnant isn't just a preservation of a group of Jews to have a nation here on earth the remnant is the people of God that he's preserving for salvation go over to Romans 11 I'm going to I'm going to steal a little bit of your time here go over to Romans 11 verses 1 through 6 I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself and an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. One more. No, no, I'm sorry. Six is right. So I just find this fascinating that Paul does find it necessary because of everything he said in Romans 10, somewhat in 9, and maybe even somewhat before that. So what about the promises to Israel? Did they go away? And he goes, no. God didn't reject his people. As a matter of fact, I'm one of them. I'm out of the tribe of Benjamin. And when we want to think about this, he says, look back at Elijah. When Elijah thought he was the only one left. And they were all destroyed. Uh, and he talks about the destruction but God replies, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. The remnant got down to 7,000 in the time of Elijah. But God had kept for 
himself. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't by anything other than God seeing the events of this world followed his divine sovereignty and preserved these 7,000 plus Elijah. And it is that continuing sovereignty of God that continues to preserve anybody here. Because if it were not for the sovereignty of God keeping his remnant today, each and every one of us would be an utter rebel and there wouldn't be anybody saved. We are not saved because of anything we do or could do. We are saved by what God did to preserve for himself, quote, a remnant. Questions, comments? So, this whole business of Joseph forgiving his brothers, we will come back to that. Joseph gives us a wonderful statement later that we can go even into more depth than we could have just off of the statements made today. And next time, let me get back to that. Next time we will start with oops, Genesis 45. And I, by next time, I mean the next time we meet. Next week, don't forget should be a wonderful Sunday school class with Tim Bryant. Um, uh, we'll start somewhere around verse, uh, verse 8. We'll start about verse 8. I'm going to have to get a running start. That's not an easy break right there, but we'll figure it out. Let's pray. Father, how could we respond with anything but thanks? Um, great gratitude Lord inexpressible gratitude that you saved a remnant then you continue to save a remnant and for those of us that are the ones you've called into your kingdom we're a part of that remnant today Lord nothing we could do full of sin full of rebellion uh, you took our sin to the cross through Christ and then you inhabited us with your spirit. Lord, lead us into paths of righteousness. Let us not give you continuing anguish over our sin, but let, Lord, lead us to live righteously with thanksgiving in all situations and also realizing that as we watch the evil around us, you are sovereign at every moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.